All right, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 23 is the text that we have left off from last week, and we will pick up where we left off last week, which is our custom here at Embassy Church, work through texts of Scripture, books of the Bible. And so in Matthew chapter 23, we're about to conclude this chapter. And we'll be looking at verses 37 to 39, three verses. And I'm going to read them and then make a few comments that will hopefully encourage us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's read the text. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These three verses are a bit of a conclusion to what we've been going through for the last several weeks. As you know, as you can look through chapter 23, there are these seven woes, W-O-E, woe. These woes are denunciations, pronouncements of warning and judgment. And these woes are directed toward the scribes and Pharisees throughout. But as you'll notice, he says, not scribes and Pharisees, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So here, as we conclude this chapter, we can see that Jesus is broadening his feeling of sadness, sorrow, pain, judgment. These are deep-filled emotional words, deeply emotional words from Jesus as he closes things out. Um, The whole chapter was certainly intense, and Jesus does not pull back any punches. But as I've tried to allude as we've gone through this chapter— These last three words need to make sure that we understand the whole chapter in light of these comments from Jesus here. Um, One thing we need to realize is that Jesus is filled with anger and wrath, for sure. Uh, Something that we don't probably always like to hear or talk about, but there is no doubt that Jesus is extremely frustrated, to say the least, with the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23. But Jesus's frustration and anger is not like your and I's frustration and anger. Jesus embodies the fullness of God in human body, and so as he is filled with anger and wrath, he is also filled with extreme love and compassion and mercy toward the very people he is angry with. There, there is a, a juxtaposition uh, a combination, as Jonathan Edwards, of the, the di- diverse excellencies of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ being combined in one person. One commentator said, Christians would do well to ponder on the compassion of Jesus echoed here in these words of Matthew chapter 23. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to ponder the compassion of Jesus the, the deeply moved heart he has for his city. This is his city, his people. This is his family, his tribe. And he is lamenting, which would be the way I think most of us would not expect this to end. I think that you would 
expect someone to just be angry and then kind of huff and puff off. But that's not at all what we find in Christ. He's leaving the temple. He's standing in the temple in Jerusalem. And when he leaves, he, he is obviously deeply burdened and sorrowful. So I want us to just look at each verse one at a time, and I want to make three comments about who Jesus is. It's always a great thing to do when you're studying the Gospels. If, if you're struggling to figure out what something is saying and what it's about, just ask, who's Jesus? And how is this text telling us about who Jesus is? So answer number one in verse 37 is Jesus is like a mother hen. Jesus is like a, a mother hen. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So again, the first thing you need to notice is, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The whole chapter has been about scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, but now it's broadened out. The capital city of Jerusalem represents the entire nation of Israel, and the entire nation of Israel is being represented as rejecting Jesus. The same charge of killing the prophets that we saw last week in the last woe, verses 29 to 36, when he says that you Pharisees are getting ready to kill me, which we know that they had plans to, and that those plans were prevented because of the crowds loving on Jesus and really uh, being his fan and thinking that he was a great prophet, so they delayed those plans. That same charge of wanting to kill the prophets is now being applied to the whole city of Jerusalem. The city that stones the prophets will be left without a stone temple with any stone on one another, as Jesus will say in just a few verses later in verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 2. Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they stone the prophets and their temple gets crumbled down without one stone on top of another. I think one of the things about the compassion of Jesus that's communicated here is actually when he says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood? How often? Good words to pause and meditate on. Think about that. How often? What does that communicate? That he has come to Jerusalem probably more than once, which we know from John's gospel. He would probably make a visit to the, the temple. How often have I come to you, Jerusalem? How often have I been the mother hen that wants to put the children under my wings and protect you from that barn fire? Jesus' words here are very much like a riddle. He understands himself to be taking the blunt and the, the blow of the wrath of God and the judgment that Jerusalem deserves. And how often has he thought, you know what I'd prefer to do? I'd prefer to die myself than have you suffer the consequences. I love you so desperately. I want you so badly. Ponder, meditate on the words, how often Jesus loves his children and wants to trade their place. This is very reminiscent of uh, what we hear in Romans chapter 9 from the Apostle Paul. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and I have un unceasing anguish in my heart. This is very much Jesus here. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul, why do you have such sorrow? such unceasing anguish. Well, he explains, 
For I wish that I myself could be accursed, damned, condemned. I wish I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God above all, blessed forever. Amen. Did you hear Paul there? I wish that I myself could be cut off. He said, if it was possible, I wish I could become not a Christian, and I could take on the punishment of God so that they could be saved. That's the logic of him explaining his emotions, his feeling, his unceasing anguish. His heart is burdened to great depths because he is looking at his friends, his family, his loved ones, his tribe, and he's saying, they're choosing the wrong path and this is killing me inside. Friends, have you ever seen a a loved one, a family member, a friend that you know is, is choosing the wrong path and you desperately try? day after day to encourage them and exhort them and they just seem to to be stubborn and stuck in their ways and and it breaks your heart well magnify that feeling in that moment by a million And, and now you're starting to understand the heart of jesus he is the mother hen that has often longed for wanted wished for the people of israel to choose and embrace protection That's what he's saying. I want to protect. That's what the image about the mother hen is about. I want to put you under my wings and I would like to protect you. But instead they want to protect themselves. I like the way one commentator said, he said, Jesus has come as the mother hen to protect his little ones from the foxes, but they prefer the foxes. And that's what's so heartbreaking. It's like, why would you prefer destruction Why wouldn't you come underneath of the shelter? And so you have a striking portrayal of the divine nurture. This is a feminine metaphor, isn't it? It's a mother hen. Just in case any of you are confused, God is both described in masculine terms, father, but he is also described with motherly qualities. All you mothers and women out there, you should not feel as if you are the lesser race inferior in any way, many ways that your femininity is being put on display by the way you carry out your life and you live your calling, it will display the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Please see that in this text. Don't let that be passed over. This is not just the only case where you will see both motherly and fatherly image used to talk about God's nature or the love of Christ. And here we have a mother hen hiding her little ones. And Jesus says, how often have I wanted and desired this? Get into the heart of God right now. Pause and let your your mind and your heart soak and meditate on these words to, to consider and ponder how long, how deep the longing is, how bad the desire is for Jesus to want salvation for those who are lost and far off. Friend, do you, do you have that longing in your heart? Is there Christ-likeness in you for the lost? Is there a burden that you sometimes wonder like, Paul, man, if I could, I would switch places with that person. I would take on the pain for them. I would be willing to die and suffer in their place. I just love them so much. I don't even care about my life anymore. This is very much the spirit of the gospel, is it not? 
And Jesus makes it plain even before he dies. He did not die because the father twisted his arm. He didn't go to the cross because somebody took his life. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, he says in another place in John's gospel. Here we know that Jesus says, how often I've wanted this. I want it badly because he knows that it will bring salvation to those who would receive Christ's protection. Verse 38, our second point about Jesus. Jesus is the mother hen. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the temple. If you wanted to use another metaphor or image, if he's the mother hen in verse 37, he is the temple of verse 38. Let's read verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house. Jesus is standing where? Somebody? He's where? Standing in the, he's standing in the temple. He's standing in the temple saying these words about a house. And especially being in that context, it seems best to understand the house reference to be about the very temple that Jesus is standing in. Now, it could be a reference to the house of the people of Israel as Jerusalem, the city, or the entire nation. But either way, all of them work together to talk about how the the temple is in Jerusalem and Jerusalem means anything because the temple's in it. But notice the way he says God's house, God's holy temple is whose house now? For I tell you, um, verse 38, sorry, see your house is left to you desolate. And it's, it's made me wonder, do you think he's almost like jabbing there somewhat? It's your house now. It's not God's house. Why is it your house? Because you have driven God's presence out of it. In fact, look at verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When Jesus leaves the temple, the presence of God is leaving the temple. And it seems as if the entire section here in 23 and in 24, as we'll see, is about the presence of God leaving the temple. And if you follow this theme throughout the Old Testament, you will know that when God's presence leaves the temple, God's protection leaves his people. Therefore, God's presence is promised in the temple to protect and to preserve the temple and his people. So when his presence leaves, there's nothing that's going to protect them from any outside forces, which is what Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about. This is very much deeply rooted in the Old Testament imagery of God's holy Shekinah glory coming down, filling the temple. And when you read Ezekiel, he says that then that glory passed away and it floated off into the sky and the temple was left desolate. The word desolate there is to be uninhabited. So he says, your house is uninhabited. It's the word that comes from the wilderness. A dusty desert instead of a beautiful, lush garden is what they have. And so judgment will fall on the temple because the temple is abandoned. It's abandoned. It has no longer the presence and the the glory of God in it. And so these people, because of their persistent sin, they have lost the presence of God. They have lost his holy presence and therefore they are defenseless. And that is what Jesus is predicting. When we turn the next chapter, you need to realize how important these last words are to set up what we're about to see in chapter 24. It prepares the way for a prediction of the explicit destruction of the temple. 
In the next chapter, just so you all can kind of get your bearings, we're going to be tackling what is one of the more, I don't know, controversial kind of Bible passages for the next several weeks in chapter 24. People have all kinds of ideas and opinions about what Jesus is saying there. And when you read it, you might think Jesus is talking about the end of the world, the end of the age, and the destruction that's going to come on. But you really need to read the, the chapter 24 in light of these last few verses of 23 and then the first few verses of 24. Jesus is not predicting the end of the world. He is predicting the end of the age. And the end of the age is the end of this time period when the old covenant is going on. And when the new covenant is going to be established, then that finishes the end of the age and begins the new age, the age of the gospel. All that to say, I think we need to make sure we realize that he is predicting that your house is left to you desolate, which means it's going to be destroyed, which sets us up quite well for the next few weeks in our messages in chapter 24. So read ahead in the coming weeks um, to prepare yourself for chapter 24 so you can see that it is about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. That's what those words in verse 2 of chapter 24 mean. You see all these, do you? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I think in terms of this point, we're seeing that God's presence dwells in Jesus Christ. It's not in a physical location. And right now, as we're gathered outside, it's a great reminder that there's not a special holy place for us to be meeting in. We can meet outside. We can meet over in the First United Methodist Church building. And uh, we can meet uh, in our homes. We can go house church. Who knows what COVID's going to bring in terms of churches and what, what gatherings might look like. Um, what, what's important? According to the Bible and the New Testament here, we need to realize that the presence of God dwells in the body of Jesus. And then when Jesus ascends to heaven, he pours out his Holy Spirit on us so that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And this is extremely comforting and encouraging to know that we can have wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus and are exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven and binding and loosing, that he's with us. The presence of God is, is with us. Now, I want to specifically make one application about um, the importance of actually gathering together. If we don't ever gather together, then there is not this same promise of him being with us. And so I, I know that it's been an extremely unusual situation for us as we've gone through church life in the last few months because we've been told and, and encouraged not to gather together physically. Um, I think that some of that has been obviously wise and, and we're trying to follow those protocols to be safe and protect one another. But do not mistake in all of the things that we've been dealing with and going through that being in our homes and never actually gathering together and even the Zoom call things that we've been doing, those are not a gathering. A gathering is to be together in person. This is why at the beginning of our service time I asked for prayer that we would consider actually taking the Lord's Supper, praying that we, we need to do that. We need to obey those commands. We need to figure out how to do that. There is something about the doing of being together there's something about this ritual, this habit of us actually being in the same place at the same time that makes us a church. When we were talking about this in our Wednesday Bible study, if I could just simply put it this way. Um, in college, I played basketball. 
And uh, when I played basketball, um, I was a part of a team. That's what kind of it means to play basketball, right? You're, you're on a team. And so I was an Olivet Nazarene Tiger. I was a, a basketball player for the great Tigers. Now, what made me a part of that team was not that I went to the, the basketball uh, gymnasium and, and worked on my jump shot alone by myself. What made me a part of that team was that I, I made the team and I practiced with the team and I played games with the team. And what some people want to say today in regards to church is that it's like, well, I, um, in my heart, I'm, I'm on the team, but I actually never play with the team. If the team never gathers and plays, it's, it's, not, it's not, not a team. So if we never gather together as a church, we're not a church. What makes us a church fundamentally is our gathering and that God's presence is with us. And I think it's extremely important that we understand that Jesus is the temple of God's presence and he is leaving that temple and his departure is like an announcement of the departure of God's holy presence. So we can know from the rest of the New Testament that that is now filled through his spirit in us. And so that should have hopefully some helpful takeaways for us as we think through what it means for us to be a church, what it means for us to be a gathering. The church, by the way, that word means to gather, to be an assembly. So um, we want to continue to try our best to make these gatherings a priority. And that's why we're doing them outside. So that way, hopefully everybody that can come can come. And those that can't, we long for you to come and join us. And we long to be back together again and take the Lord's Supper. Last verse, verse 39. We've seen that Jesus is the hen. Jesus is the temple. Verse 39, Jesus is the pilgrim. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We did this reading earlier, Psalm 118. The pilgrims going up to worship God and make sacrifices in Jerusalem's temple. And if you're really reading closely in your Bibles, you'll notice that you've actually already read these words in Matthew. So if you turn your Bibles, turn back one page to Matthew chapter 21. And I want you to notice that Jesus, when he first enters in Jerusalem in Matthew 21, it says that he drew near Jerusalem. He came to Beth, Bethphage, to the Mount Olives. Jesus sent two disciples. He got a donkey. They untied it. They brought it to him. And then this fulfilled what was said by the prophet. Now drop down to verse 6. It says that the disciples went and did as Jesus directed. They brought the donkey. People put their cloaks uh, on it. He sat on it. And the crowd started spreading their cloaks on the road. Others caught branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him. And then they started shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What did they say and sing? Hosanna, Hosanna, right? Palm branches, laying out cloak, uh, these cloaks on the ground. This is very much a king's-like entrance that we see here. In our text, it's almost like a, an ironic twist. For I tell you, you will not see me again. Until, I think the better translation here is actually unless. It's a conditional statement. For I tell you, you will not see me again unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a greeting. It's part of Psalm 118. A greeting in Hebrew um, culture. It's a, a, a messianic uh, 
promise that when God's presence comes, they will receive the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And notice that it's, for I tell you, you will not see me again. If you follow 37 to 38, the presence of God is leaving the temple. And he's like, the temple and the presence of God is not coming back until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here what we have is a, a promise of what will take place if you receive the blessing of Jesus's presence and call him the blessed one. And we don't know what these people will do other than by reading the rest of the story. When Jesus is saying this, he's saying, unless you say this, then you're going to receive the judgment that I just talked about. But if you say this, then you will receive me and you will receive my protection and you will receive blessing and all that I've come to do to protect and save you and, and rescue you. It's, it's really a call. It's, it's a call to you and me. Do you say in your heart, your mind, do you say out loud, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the full embodiment of God in human flesh. He is my Lord and my King and my rock and he is my Savior and I want to hide underneath the shadow of his wing. As we sang in that song earlier, the, um, the rock of ages. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. We need saved from the wrath of God, just like these Israelite Jerusalem citizens need saved. And the only way is verse 39. For I tell you, you won't see me again. You won't receive my blessing and protection unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, You've seen that Jesus is the hen and the temple of God's presence. And now we see him as the ultimate final pilgrim coming up to Jerusalem in Psalm 118 fashion. And will you greet him? Will you receive him? Do you believe in him? Do you believe that it's Christ and Christ alone that we must come to? And do you believe him in such a way that you are not like the crowds going along with the flow and the motions, but truly from the depths of your heart, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's put it this way. In chapter 21, people are shouting and, and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got the answer right with their lips. But within a few short hours, if not days, there will be um, the same crowds of people. And instead of shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna, the crowd turns and they shout, crucify him, crucify him. It's extremely important for each of us to examine our hearts to see if truly we believe and trust in Christ to be our protection, our presence of God in, in human form, our our pilgrim, that Jesus is the full embodiment of our salvation. And he, he did that by receiving the shouts of Hosanna that then turned quickly to shouts of crucify him. And he became that mother hen that was burned 
and suffered in our place so that we could be saved and rescued. So let's meditate on these three things. Let's apply them to our lives. Let's commit ourselves as a church family to continue to gather together and, and make these gatherings a, a commitment and a priority. Let's also bless the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and suffered in our place, who took on the full wrath and weight of God's anger towards sinners like us. How often, how deep is the longing he has for us? Or as we're about to sing, how deep is God's love for us? Let's pray first. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world and that he would take our place. He would be our substitute. He would want to be the one who suffers in our place. So Lord, I want to pray that we will receive this grace and this love and this mercy that we will say in our mind, in our hearts, and even as we sing now, may it be a singing of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is our Messiah and King. Lord God, we want to thank you for Jesus and his love for us, that it would change our hearts. It would transform the way we live and the way we think. Lord God, we want to thank you for the way that you have given us this word, and we pray that we would be meditating and, and considering and pondering the deep love that you've showed and displayed in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.